to Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year, a weekly devotional series based on readings relevant to the current liturgical season. You can watch this series live on our YouTube page every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for tuning in, and now on to this week's discussion. Welcome. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to To Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year. My name is William Green, and as always, I'm joined by Pastor Brian King. Tonight, we're going to be focusing on the first reading for this coming Sunday in the three-year lectionary. Now, this is interesting. Uh, it's not an Old Testament reading. There are two uh, New Testament readings in addition to the gospel reading for this coming yes. Sunday. That happens sometimes during some of the seasons of the year where they do a first reading instead of an Old Testament reading. Okay. I was wondering how typical that was. That's interesting. Yeah, it does happen. And it always catches you off guard because, you know, you go to read the lesson. The old, uh, the first reading, you, know, <laughs> yeah, just, right. you get stutter and stammer your way through it. But uh, usually it's a reading from Acts. Okay. Yeah. And there appears to be a theme running through both of these New Testament readings. So we'll read the, the Acts uh, section just in a bit. But um, the other New Testament reading, in addition to the gospel, is from 1 Peter 3, where we're taught to give a defense for the hope that we have. And so tonight's uh, theme is a little bit more philosophical, I guess you could say. Yes. Uh, like the, that First Peter verse is one of like the main texts that apologists use to justify why we should be using reason to defend our, our beliefs in God. And as we'll see tonight, uh, the Acts reading is also a little bit philosophical. It is. It's got a philosophical background to it, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It does. So yep. Should we resolve the suspense and get to the reading? <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. Acts 17, 16 to 31. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here ends our reading. Great. Thank you, Pastor. You're welcome. So there's a lot going on here, and I've always loved this part of scripture because it kind of gives us a window into how Paul dealt with uh, non-believers and like the sort of rhetoric he used. And I've always had a special affinity for this section because, as we know, uh, the men of Athens were one of the more philosophical bunches in the, the ancient world. And um, philosophy was something that was just very important to their culture. And so it's really cool to see what Paul does when he goes into a context that he knows kind of shares that sort of philosophical background and uh, the sort of rhetoric he uses to get his point across in, in that context. Right. And this is this is right in your wheelhouse, uh, to use the current phrase, mm-hmm. of, of studying philosophy. Right. So just a couple questions to get us started here. And... Um, the, so we talk about the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So those are two different schools. Tell us what they are. Yeah. Yeah. So in this context, um, the Epicureans tended to be, uh, we might consider a little bit more atheistic as far as their thinking was concerned. Um, they did believe in the normal Greek gods. However, they kind of thought they were far removed from human affairs. They were somewhere but they really didn't affect human beings all that much. So functionally, they didn't play much of a role in their in their system. Uh, they were atomists, which means that they believe that reality was constituted from matter, just like many atheists today uh, that believe that uh, the material stuff was the main stuff of reality and that there wasn't much beyond that. They believe that after you died, uh, you were annihilated. That was kind of the the end of you. And so um, their philosophy was primarily focused on how we ought to be happy given those sorts of facts about the, uh, the material world. And so their focus was very much on uh, achieving pleasures um, and just kind of enjoying the life that you have and uh, not worrying so much about the gods, not worrying so much about death, just kind of living in the moment and um, you know, using these pleasures to make you happy. So were they shallow hedonist? Hedone is the Greek word for pleasure. Right. So were they shallow pleasure seekers? Not probably not quite in the sense that many people might, might think today, they still kind of had this hierarchy of uh, pleasures. They saw some pleasures as being more beneficial than others. Uh, There's this Greek word that we use to kind of denote happiness and, and flourishing in philosophy called eudaimonia. And that was still kind of the goal of the Epicurean uh, way of life. You you still wanted to live this good life. And for them, that was through uh, the achievement of these like kind of base carnal pleasures, not so much in excess. It wasn't just about getting as much of these good things as you could. There was still sort of moderation involved, but they thought the moderation is what would ultimately bring about uh, the most happiness. So you, you don't want to eat too much because you'll have a stomach ache the next day. Right. And that'll okay. make you <laughs> ultimately less, <laughs> less happy. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Okay. So, and, the, and then the Stoics and how they're different. The Stoics are different. So probably more points of comparison, more overlap 
with the Stoic philosophy and Christianity than certainly with the Epicureans. Um, the Stoics were were pantheists, so they believed that all of reality was somehow kind of part of God. And um, their philosophy was, again, kind of more practically focused. And uh, they kind of saw the uh, detachment, detachment from the physical world as the ultimate means uh, to happiness. So they, they kind of bought into this idea that there's a sort of reasonableness to the world and that everything was is as it should be. And so the Stoic system is very much about embracing the way things are and kind of changing your mindset to adapt to the realities of the situation. And that so, sort of makes sense. The way we use the word stoicism today is that if something bad happens, you suck it up, buttercup, right? Yeah. That's, that's kind of like the everyday notion of what stoicism is. And that's a bit, that's obviously a bit simplified because they weren't necessarily saying accept the bad other than learn to deal with it as part of reality. Right. Yeah, exactly. So our happiness ultimately comes in changing our mindset, realizing that the world is the way it is. There's a certain reasonableness to the world. And so um, if we experience some sort of dissatisfaction in life, it's not a problem with the world necessarily. It's a problem with our own mindset. And so the Stoics were about adapting our own mindset, uh, kind of tempering our expectations. And if you do that, you won't ever be dissatisfied and you'll find happiness in doing that accommodate the reality Mm -hmm. and in some way lower your expectations of perfection because you're not going to find it yeah yeah that's more or less right yep okay yep okay and so those are kind of the two main schools that we have mentioned here at the uh areopagus in in athens okay what what uh so paul was in the marketplace the agora agora um that that was where things were what was what was the point of that Yep. So we have like two main places here. We have the Agora, which uh, was kind of like the central location in in the Greek city, a commercial hub, but also a political hub. So people would come to the Agora to hear speeches from the political leaders, but there were also vendors in a sort of marketplace. And so people would come here as like this sort of cultural center to hear new ideas, uh, hear uh, the leader say whatever he has to say, and, um, you know, talk to other people who were shopping on any given day well you know it's interesting thing about the agora um we have the market area in ottawa yeah which is right downtown mm-hmm. it's fairly old some of the buildings are quite old it's it's just you know, a good stone's throw from parliament hill right like it's 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 kind of the center of where all the people gather and things happen and there are street preachers and you know people make uh a fuss there and things like that. So yeah. It, 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 I, I've always liked that about the Ottawa market that it's sort of historic in that way. I mean, it is historic here in Ottawa, but this kind of place in a city has been going on for thousands of years. Yep. It's Ottawa kind of, is a model ancient Greek city. There you go. <laughs> yeah. who, who knew? Who knew? And we have our high, high point, uh, Nepean point, you know, you can, yeah. The, Areop- the Areopagus was, uh, on a, on a hill, right? So yeah, that's right. Yeah, the Areopagus was uh, on a hill, you know, directly adjacent to the Agora. So this is all kind of in the same geographical location. And again, the Areopagus, uh, just another gathering place where intellectuals come and discuss the ideas of the day. 
Right. So it wasn't a marketplace and it wasn't a place of business. It was it was more where the philosophers carried on their business. Right? That's right. Yep. That's right. Okay. okay. So how do you think this worked for the people, these two different schools? What were the people seeking? And did these schools of philosophy satisfy their desires? So it's interesting. I, I think the reason that uh, Stoicism and Epicureanism were attractive philosophies and kind of enjoyed a sort of longevity in ancient Greece was that they were aimed primarily at focusing on practical solutions to obtaining happiness. So I mentioned that they did have these sort of like metaphysical and ontological uh, beliefs happening in the background, but the main focus of their philosophies was very much just this sort of practical attainment of being happy. Like, yeah, what do I have to do to be a happy person? Is, is the notion of contentment, is that, because they, happy is almost like too glib a word yeah. in a way. There's a certain contentment that I think they're seeking, but we have barriers with, with language and change. Now, no, that, to, that's a great point. So I mentioned eudaimonia earlier, yeah. and it's it's unfortunate we don't really have an English equivalent to encapsulate everything that eudaimonia encapsulates. We sometimes uh, translate it as prospering or happiness. Contentment is probably a good word. It's just this kind of fulfillment of your, your biggest needs and the fulfillment of your, the attainment of your best ends, let's say. Right. So contentment, looking at, both these schools lumping together for a second, sort of dealing with the reality or the hand you're dealt. If you can find contentment in your situation, then you're partway there, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So right. you used a couple terms. You said metaphysical, and then you said ontological. So define them both, please. Sure. So the biggest distinction we're making here is between the more theoretical side of philosophy and, and the more practical side. So when we talk about like metaphysics or uh, ontology, we're talking about their their kind of theoretical beliefs about what the universe is, how it works, uh, where did we come from, uh, what are the gods, what are their role. Those are the so kind me- of the big metaphysical questions. Yeah. So metaphysical is that which is alongside the physical, right? Yeah, or kind of beyond in a way. Mm-hmm. Beyond, yeah, the meta with or beside or something. So metaphysical is not just the physical it's but it but it's not saying it's not real no 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 metaphysics as a philosophical enterprise is about talking about what reality is so when we talk about our metaphysical uh views we're usually talking about things like either materialism which is just the belief that matter is all there is or like dualism that reality is a mixture of uh like soul or uh, non-material things and matter. These are all sorts of metaphysical views. We're talking about what reality is at its base when we talk about metaphysics. Okay. And the ontological coming from the Greek word ontos for being, the, the idea of being existing. Yep. It, um, and, and, and it's interesting. I mean, so when we talk about the ontological questions, we're talking about the, the questions of existence of being. Yep, exactly. And, and and those are huge. But in some ways, are the Epicureans and the Stoics, they're not necessarily dealing with those questions of being, are they? They're just kind of questioning how we deal with it. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, those questions kind of take a backseat for both of these philosophies. 
And it's interesting because I, I think this is kind of how secular culture operates today as well. As we were prepping for this, uh, we were talking about this kind of resurgence in stoicism, especially in like Silicon Valley. And uh, you see like all of these different self-help books. And um, a lot of people are really attracted to those sorts of things. And these health, self-help books might kind of mention religion or something metaphysical in the background to kind of prop up their beliefs. But the main thing is really like this sort of practical application. What do I have to do to be successful? What do I have to do to be happy? That's what people are really after when they go to buy these books. It's not so much for the religion or the metaphysics. And so I think we kind of have a similar tendency uh, here in in Acts in ancient Greece. Uh, The metaphysical things are kind of happening in the background. But the thing that's really attracting the listeners is these practical things. What do I need to do to be happy? So it's almost as though both then and now, oh, yeah, there's a higher power, there's a God, or there's something, but and, and let's get on to the important stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm I'm concerned about my happiness, so give me the list of things I need to do to be happy, and that's really what I want. If religion kind of comes along with that, or if that's operating in the background, Great. that's fine, yeah. but that's not the main concern. So right. if there if there's a resurgence in stoicism, and in, in, in amongst you know modern younger people, is what you're telling me, mm-hmm. that um, they're not really looking for spiritual fulfillment. They're looking for the day to day. I need to be content or happy to use those words again. Yeah, exactly. And and stoicism is a kind of flexible philosophy, and, and maybe that's one reason that it's it's found favor today. Is it works given a lot of different metaphysical realities or systems. So um, I'm sure there are even branches of like Christian stoicism. If you just take like the practical guidelines to what the Stoics were saying in ancient Greece, this sort of detachment from reality, uh, just trying to shift your own mindset to fit what the reality of the situation is rather than trying to affect some sort of external change, you can see how that system would be applicable to a wide variety of different religions or metaphysical views. Right. It is what it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, you hear that all the time when people are talking about something that they don't really like. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So stoicism, I I think, I I think Christian people have always felt as though they're supposed to be stoic. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. Some of the main stoic writers found a lot of favor in the early church. I was, as we were researching for this, I was kind of surprised to see how extensively Seneca in particular, uh, how positively he was regarded by some of the early church fathers. Uh, Tertullian speaks really highly of Seneca, Ambrose. So you have like these sort of uh, stoic philosophers and poets that are highly regarded by at least some portions of the ancient church. And, that's that's and very I, interesting. And I think it makes sense on the one hand, because, you know, we we're supposed to have the same attitude as Jesus did, right? Mm-hmm. Who, though he was in nature, God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but emptying himself out, taking on the nature of a servant, you know, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You could look at that as the epitome of stoicism. Yeah, in a way, sure. And we're and we're supposed to model that, right? Right, right. So yeah. where's the, where's the problem then? Where is there is there a problem with us sort of? encouraging the stoic attitude or stoicism where's the problem will well so appropriating some elements of stoicism into a christian mindset 
is is probably okay. In fact, we can see some at least points of comparison or or overlap between Stoicism and Christianity. In fact, I think as Lutherans in particular, I think we're often accused of being one of the more Stoic denominations of Christianity, especially compared to most other Protestant denominations in the West. Yeah, I've commented on that when I'm about to make a joke from the pulpit and say, okay, it is okay to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? We're perceived as kind of these unfeeling, uh, detached Christians. Rational. And, um, yeah. And in some sense, there might be some truth to that. So uh, a few months ago, we talked to uh, Dr. Gene Edward Veith, and we talked a bit about his spirituality at the cross. And in that book, he talked about this idea that the spirituality of the cross uh, contrasted with the spirituality of, of glory. Um, this idea that for us Lutherans, uh, we find joy and contentment uh, regardless of what our station is in this life, right? That sounds like stoicism. It does. It does sound like stoicism. Yeah. And so like he give, gives an example in the book about like a cancer patient and how two people might approach that situation. You have some Christians who go into that situation and think my happiness is dependent upon some sort of external change. I'm going to pray and have faith that God will take this illness away from me. And my happiness is more or less dependent upon whether or not he does that. And that's kind of like the, the theology of, of glory, right? Yeah. The spirituality yeah. of glory. Whereas the spirituality of the cross that uh, Dr. Veith was getting at is saying, okay, uh, I'm going through suffering right now. I, I don't like this. This is hard. But it's more about recognizing that God is sovereign over all of it and that he has our best good in mind, regardless of what we're going through. So kind of with, like with Stoicism, it's not so much about changing the outward or the external circumstances. It's more, you know, coming to grips with your station in life and giving God the glory through all of it and recognizing that he knows what's best for you and you don't. So and, some, go ahead. And that's kind of a Stoic notion in a way. There's some overlap there. Right. So you could say that at some level, both Stoics and Christians say, I can't control the world, but I can control myself at some level. Yeah. Christians, Christians, not so much, but, but I, I think there's a, could we say that the Stoics seek to control themselves in order to gain contentment while, while the Christians have that contentment, which feeds their attitude and behavior? That's a great way of putting it. Okay. The means and the ends are kind of reversed between the Stoics and the Christians. So the Stoics, the means to ultimate happiness is the Stoicism, that sort of detachment. That's what you have to do in order to achieve that ultimate happiness. Whereas for the Christian, we have that sort of ultimate happiness already in what Christ has done for us on the cross. And that's ultimately our, our source of joy. And that sort of ultimate fulfillment that we already have uh, gives us this sort of stoic attitude, for lack of a better word, that we can be happy regardless of whatever our circumstances are in this life because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Right. We've already, we be, through Christ, we have everything. Right. We have forgiveness of sins. We have uh, 
the hope of a blessed eternity. We have fellowship with other believers. That brings us contentment. Right. Which allows us to live out our lives in a way that our lives aren't destroyed by what may happen to us. Right. Because our lives are rooted in Christ. Right. Where for the people trying to find contentment or purpose through their behavior and then seeing the result of their own actions, it's always tenuous and nebulous and never really works out the way they want it to. Right. Go back to the cancer patient example. Right. So a stoic who has cancer will say, okay, my sadness over my situation comes from my being overly attached to my own life, being overly attached to the goods in the world. And so my happiness is dependent upon my ability ability to detach myself from these earthly goods. And doing that, I will be happy. Whereas the Christian cancer patient will say, I know that God has my best interest in mind, even in my suffering. He uses our suffering for our own good, right? And anything that I experience in this life is going to pale in comparison to the joy I'll have in eternity and the life after. And so that's where my joy rests. And because we have that joy, we kind of naturally have this detachment from all of these earthly things. And it's not that we don't care. And contentment. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that we necessarily don't like the earthly things that we we don't care about our our family or uh, or all these other good things that we have we do, but we realize that God ultimately has our best interest at heart, and so anything we go to, through in this life is contributing to the joy in uh, the life that will to come. Right. Right. And it's also really good news for us Christian people is not only does God have what's best for us in his heart, but also what's best for our children. Yeah. And yeah. our loved ones. Like God, right. I always tell people, God loves your child or spouse or whoever's sick or whatever. I always remind them, God loves that person more than you ever possibly could. Right. And that right. has to give us a certain contentment and a satisfaction or a comfort that, you know, God loves us all. For sure. And, and yeah. cares for us all. Yep. So they were looking, they were seeking. And then today, we you talked about resurgence of Stoicism uh, that people are still seeking. And you know, I'm reminded of Augustine's comment, the soul is restless until it finds its rest in you, O God. And for us Christian people, we have that, that comfort. We have that rest. Right. Okay. We right. Can, we, as we're enveloped in Christ, in his righteousness, in his forgiveness, as, as we live in him, then we can deal with the world because you know he he was in me is greater than he that is in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. We have we have what everyone has been seeking for millennia. Yeah. We have it through Christ. Right. Yep. And that's, that's why, right. like that's why Paul wanted to share that, you know, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He wanted to give them this this knowledge that had been revealed, mm-hmm. was based in history, and did answer, don't use the fancy word, ontological questions, questions of being, even if they weren't, even if those questions weren't the most important to the people at the Areopagus, Paul, Paul was going to give them to them. Right. And talk about where they came from, what the purpose of life is, where they're going when that life is over. He was in a way answering questions that they weren't answering, but, or they weren't asking, Mm -hmm. but those were the big questions that everyone needs to ask. Exactly. Ultimately, the big ontological questions, the metaphysical questions, 
answering those are ultimately going to be the primary thing in achieving happiness, right? Yeah. Because, of course, uh, for us Christian people, as we've already said, uh, we find our ultimate contentment and happiness in unity with God, right? And so if you ever try to attain happiness apart from that ultimate end, that ultimate goal, it's always going to fall short. And I think that's ultimately what Paul was trying to impress upon uh, the people in Athens is that there are, um, yeah, like people are striving for happiness and there's a way to achieve that happiness, but it's not using the means that you think Uh, it's through this higher power through unity with God and through uh, the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And the, the, one of the more beautiful things about the Christian message is that it is rooted in history. Yes. It's not based on speculation. Right. It's, right. And it, it's it's not based on mental gymnastics. It's based on a historical event, namely God taking flesh, coming into this world and bleeding and dying on our behalf. Right. Exactly. People, people don't debate the historicity of the existence of Jesus. They just question what the significance of it is. Mm-hmm. Where through this revealed wisdom through God's word, we understand both the event, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and ascension, and the significance of it for our lives day to day. Mm-hmm. Yep. We find our contentment in Jesus. Exactly. Okay. Right. Probably a good place to wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Thank you very much, Will. I, I took advantage of your philosophical background and, and I hopefully milked it for all it was worth. <laughs> it's good so. to use it every once in a while. <laughs> it is. It is. It's good. Thank you very much. It, uh, I threw the burden on you tonight. That was great. I enjoyed it. We'll have to do do more of that as time goes on. For sure. So do you have a colic for uh, this evening? Yes. Okay, then we pray. Lord, because you have promised to give what we ask in the name of your only begotten Son, teach us rightly to pray and with all your saints to offer you our adoration and praise. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.